Todd Ash. I think working with a, one of the groups of engineers there, and uh, the legend is that she was the frat mom. That's what they call uh, me. The frat mom to the, uh, my, well, slightly younger engineers. Only yes. slightly younger. Yes. Should have said frat older sister, but, you know, engineers, they're not always respectful. No, they got it right. <laughs> Anyhow, she's uh, currently working at the Multicultural Center in town as a teacher, and so that's a wonderful thing. Uh, she also has been leading uh, women's Bible studies here at Hillcrest, and occasionally she preaches, and we're thrilled about that. And so this morning, she's, we've given her the most difficult passage in Ephesians that's so right. that I don't have to do it. And I'm really excited about that part. So uh, God bless you and go for it. Thank you. He's right. When, uh, when Pastor Kurt asked me if I would, would speak this morning, I took a look at the passage and I said to him, hmm, a passage about slavery and two women. Is there any reason why the guys don't want to handle this passage? He says, no, 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 it's fine. <clears throat> thank you. Um, and thank you for this opportunity to speak to you. Thank you for hanging out for the next half hour and listening to me as I share God's word with you. We're taking a look at Galatians chapter four, verses 19 to 31 this morning. And I'll get to that, those passages just a little bit later. <clears throat> Please excuse me, I'm at the tail end of a summer cold, so my voice is a little hoarse. When our children were young, um, I read this book regularly to them. It's by Eastman, and the title of the book is Are You My Mother? I'm sure some of you recognize it. So there's a little bird who um, is about to hatch, and his mother takes off to find food for when this baby is born. And she's gone. When he hatches, he looks around. Nobody's there, so he jumps out of the nest to go and look for his mother. And he goes to a cat and says, Are you my mother? And then he goes to a dog, are you my mother? And on and on the story goes until he finally gets to a big earth-moving excavator and he says, are you my mother? And of course the children, even preschoolers, they know that this is so silly, so silly that he would go out into the big world to look for his mother instead of just staying in his nest and finding his identity there, staying where he belongs. Like every great story, this is a story of redemption. And the excavator puts him back in the nest. His mother's there anxiously waiting for him. He finds where he belongs. And, and that's what we're looking for too, that safe place where we are safe and free to grow and develop as God's much-loved children. And that's what this passage in Galatians chapter four is about. Now, as Pastor Steve said, this is one of the most difficult passages that Paul ever wrote. We're gonna unravel it together. Um, he writes a couple of unusual illustrations or allegories to help take the Galatian believers back to their true identity. It's an unusual passage, so I'll be giving a lot of context. And for those who are in Bible study with me on Wednesday nights, you know I love context. Remember that different gospel that Paul writes about in chapter one? There are these false teachers who are adding to the gospel. God's direction had come to the Jewish nation for centuries, often as a set of rules and kind of a half promise that if they followed the rules, 
they would have better access to God. But it didn't ever work out that way because nobody could follow all of the rules. Law says, believe, obey the rules, and you'll be saved. And these teachers were saying, were saying that because that is what had made them special in God's eyes, all of these new Gentile Christians must have to do the same thing, that God must require the same thing of them in order to be believers. And in this passage, Paul says, just a minute, I'm bewildered because you're willing to listen to fancy teaching and leave grace. See, grace says, believe in Christ's death and resurrection and you're saved. Period, done. Now that you're saved, yes, you're going to want to obey God. But now you have the Holy Spirit to help you um, fulfill this gift of obedience. He's saying to the, the Galatians, he says, you didn't fall out of the nest, you are deliberately stepping out and back into a slavish way of living. Last fall, our life group studied a series. Do I need to change something here? I'm getting some feedback. Pardon me? Sure. This one? Last, fa <clears throat> Last fall in our life group, we studied a series called Twisting the Truth. And it was about the strategies that Satan uses to trick us as believers into um, diverting from the truth. So Satan doesn't have to tempt me with the really big sins anymore. If I'm tempted to murder someone, I know that's wrong. And most of the time, I can avoid that temptation. What he does is he says things that are almost right, but they have a little twist. Something that sounds reasonable, but there's a little tiny something in there that's not true. If I have the goal of walking straight ahead and I get just slightly off track, the farther I walk on that new twisted track, the farther I get away from the truth that was my original goal. And that's the problem here in the Galatian church. So Paul uses a very strong word picture to convey how important it is for these people and for us to return to the gospel, to the true gospel. Let's begin reading in Galatians chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Now here's a little aside. Some people think that the Bible is just a little bit sexist or maybe gender biased, but I tend to disagree. Through scripture, both men and women are challenged to be warriors or challenged to be athletes. And here, Paul says he's in labor, as in labor pains. And I'm sure that made some of the men squeamish. Fair enough. Let me tell you about labor. <clears throat> 
Hey, Daisy set me up with this a few months ago when she spoke. Labor, it hurts. There's, there's some discomfort. The King James translation of labor pangs, doesn't cut it. Mostly it hurts. A woman's body takes over and there's no way to stop it. Labor pains command complete focus. Everything else fades into the background. My entire focus, especially during a contraction, is on getting that baby born and nothing else matters. My husband, John, has a scar to prove that this is true. Apparently, my hand was resting lovingly on his arm and a contraction hit and I dug in my nails and I drew blood and I was completely unaware that that was happening and John very wisely said nothing about his pain until much, much later. <laughs> So why do we do this? We do it knowing that while we won't forget the pain, the treasure at the end of the process is completely worth it. A new person, a child that we get to love and raise. And so Paul uses this word picture to describe how important his words are. He says, this is about to get painful. It's painful for me because I have to speak so harshly to you, but it's also going to be painful for you, Galatians. He says, this is so important. I am focusing all of my attention on getting you back to the truth. And I'm going to stay in this pain until I reach the goal. And in these verses it says the goal is Christ fully developed in your lives. Remember, these believers wanted to please God. They wanted to grow. And that's part of the problem that they were in this situation and had gotten caught up in this false teaching. So Paul is saying, this isn't just kind of important, this is of utmost important. <clears throat> now we come to one of the most unusual and difficult passages that Paul ever wrote. And through the centuries, people have read this and gone, huh? What? It seems a little convoluted. So we're going to take some time to unravel it this morning. It refers to two sons, but it really starts with the two mothers. Now, Paul has just introduced this concept with his labor pain analogy. So he's bridged into it. <clears throat> it can be a difficult passage because Paul uses something here called rabbinic exegesis or rabbinic argument in verses 21 to 31, and it's not a typical Western way of using history to illustrate a spiritual truth. <clears throat> we'll come back to that. We need a little more context. Remember that all our understanding comes through our cultural worldview, what's normal to us, what we've grown up seeing and understanding and believing. And my idea, my ideas can grow and change, but. I need exposure to another culture or another way of thinking in order for my ideas to change. It could even be a, a different church culture that can do this for us. So here at Hillcrest, we have a certain church culture. We understand where we're going. We're on this trip together. We understand when certain references are made that they're historical or they're to, to a kind of spiritual discipline that we're all moving towards. But say you were picked up and dropped into a Presbyterian congregation or maybe an Anglican congregation, 
at first you'd be a little bit, I don't know what's going on. And then as you listened and paid attention, you would begin to understand their way of thinking. It's still the Bible. It's still God's word. You're just looking at it from a slightly different perspective. And that's how we have to look at this passage from a cultural context. To go forward, we have to go back for a minute. So the false teachers were using Old Testament tradition to teach their position. They were saying, we have a physical by birth connection to Abraham and Sarah, and that's from God. And they were right. That was true. They were saying, we have practiced the law that God gave to Moses, and we have done this for hundreds of years. That also was true. So then they went on to say, therefore, this same practicing of God's Old Testament law must be required in order for God to accept you Gentile Christians. But that was the twist. That was false because it doesn't take into consideration the new covenant. See, the whole point of the Jewish nation was to provide Jesus to the world. These teachers were very good at explaining the Old Testament in ways that sounded right. And this is called rabbinic argument or rabbinic teaching style. In order to continue to unravel this illustration in verses 21 and 31, and I promise you we will get there and read them in a minute, I need to reference the story that is being used. <clears throat> we find this story in Genesis chapters 16 to 21, and it's really long, so please bear with me while I tell it briefly. I'm not going to include all of the details, so don't come up to me afterwards and say, hey, Linda, you forgot this part. I know. This is Sarah's story, I think, in my opinion. So Sarah is getting old. She is elderly. And she has been very impatiently waiting for God to fulfill his promise and give um, her and Abraham a son. She knows that menopause is way behind her. She is too old to conceive. And even if she did, she's not really sure that she could safely deliver a baby. I mean, she's, she's getting old. So she decided to help God out with a human solution, a way of solving God's problem for him. And she turned to a culturally acceptable solution. Everyone did it and gave Hagar her slave to Abraham. Now, before you get too hard on Sarah, remember that we all turn to culturally accepted practices and plans sometimes and circumvent God's A plan. I want to give you an example. And this is a non-sinful example in and of itself. I'm not condoning what she did. I'm just going to give you a non-sinful example. Tax receipts. I know people who will not donate to anything unless they get a tax receipt. Now, there is nothing wrong or sinful with a tax receipt. I use them every year when I do my income tax. It's a great thing. However, if God asks me to help somebody out, and I look at the situation and say, well, I won't get a tax receipt, so I think I'll pass this time, I'm now circumventing God's plan. I'm being disobedient. So you can see, there are culturally accepted things that we just think are normal. And for Sarah, she thought this was normal. So she gave her slave, Hagar, to Abraham to produce the promised son. As with all my shortcuts to help God along, it didn't turn out well. 
um, Hagar gets pregnant and she begins to flaunt her pregnancy. Our youngest daughter, Andrea, I remember when she was in high school, if she was talking about somebody who thought more highly of themselves than they ought, she would say, oh, she thinks she's all that and a bag of chips. It was the funniest expression. And that was Hagar here. She got pregnant, and basically she started saying to Sarah, na na na, I'm pregnant and you're not. And so Sarah goes to Abraham and says, get rid of her. Abraham says, hey, this was your idea. She's your slave. You handle it. Not a shining moment in their marriage, let me point out. So Sarah goes back, and, and the scripture says she begins to treat Hagar harshly. Badly enough, in fact, that Hagar runs away to the desert to die. God shows up. They have a chat. At the end of the chat, he says, go back and obey your mistress. And Hagar does. And then Ishmael is born. Years later, not the next month, not even the next year, but years later, God finally intervenes miraculously. Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. He is conceived and safely delivered. He is the child of promise. A few years later, big brother Ishmael begins to bully Isaac. Now, the scripture says he mocks him, but the idea is he was bullying his little half-brother. And a mama bear, Sarah, has had enough. She goes to Abraham and she says, they've got to go. Get rid of them. This is hard for Abraham. I mean, Ishmael's his son too, right? But he, he does get rid of them. He sets them up in another place, and Hagar raised Ishmael as, as a single mom. And it's interesting when I read the story to note that God protects them, even after they're away from, from Abraham's camp. So the false teachers use this story to say, obey, and God will be pleased with you. We are descendants from Sarah, and we have a direct connection to the promise, and if you become like us, you will really please God. And in this case, obedience became an idol, a way to please God apart from Jesus. They were trying to fit the, the new covenant back into the comfortable old covenant way of doing things. But the new covenant is different. It's complete in and of itself. Jesus is enough. Here's another little aside. If you ever wonder how our worship teams pick out songs, it's the Holy Spirit. None of them knew what I was going to say this morning, and every single song that we sang this morning had some part of this passage in it, some of, some of these comments, some of these ideas. Jesus is more than enough was one of the lines in one of the songs. Anyway, these teachers were pretty good, and the Galatians were saying to Paul, yeah, but but these guys are really knowledgeable and, and these Jewish teachings, teachers are telling us about the Old Testament God and you believe in the Old Testament, Paul, and, and it sounds so reasonable and we want to make God happy, so... And Paul says, you want to listen to this style of teaching? <laughs> Bring it on. I can do this. I learned rabbinic argument when I was in rabbi seminary years ago. And Paul goes back to his old training in order to use the same kind of teaching that these false teachers were utilizing and bring the Galatians back on track. So he proceeds to use their Old Testament proofs and their style of exegesis to point out how the false teachers who were trapped in their works way of thinking had missed the point 
of the grace-based new, new covenant. He explains what God, through Jesus, gives us. And he says, yes, being a son, a child of the promise, is important, but only if you have been born into God's family by grace through Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant. So here's how Paul uses the story. It's an illustration of the two covenants, the old way of doing and the new. And a covenant, by the way, is just an agreement that God makes between him and us. He points out that the law was to direct people to God, but it can't fill the gap between us and God. He points out that God's requirements regarding sin were fulfilled completely through Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says, so you want to add the law to your salvation? Here's what it looks like. Okay, finally, we're to the rest of our passage. Let's read. Starting at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration. Now remember, this is just an illustration, okay? An analogy. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac, which are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about this? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. In good Western fashion, I've made a comparison chart in order for us to understand what this passage is saying, the things that Paul is trying to convey, not only to the Galatian believers, but to us. <clears throat> Terrific, thanks. Hagar was a slave woman. Her son was conceived and born without supernatural intervention, trying to help God out with a human solution. While Sarah was a free woman, her son was conceived and born only with miraculous intervention, as was God's plan all along. Ishmael was the slave son. He and Hagar represent Mount Sinai and the law. It's never enough to close the gap between us and God. Where Isaac is the free son, and he represents the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It fulfilled all of the law's requirements for us. Hagar represents the 
past. Trying to keep the law means to always be looking back, guilt and condemnation, where Sarah represents my future, looking ahead to all that God through Jesus has prepared for me both in this life and in the next. Hagar is a reminder of the earthly Jerusalem or the nation of Israel bound to a futile attempt to reach God through a set of rules, where Sarah is an illustration of the heavenly Jerusalem or the church, freedom and life in and with Jesus Christ. Hagar passed on her legacy of slavery to her son. She had many descendants, but no spiritual legacy. Sarah's son was born free, and through him, they provided the line for the Savior, who then included all of us as children of promise through a spiritual rebirth. Hagar gave a futile obedience. It was not enough. Following the rules was not enough to keep her in the family. Where grace leaves me free to obey God, Christ's grace makes me an adopted full child of God's family. It covers all of my sin, not just some of it. The law points out that I need freedom from sin. I am enslaved to it. Jesus gives me the freedom to live abundantly through the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Ishmael, the slave son, was not eligible for an inheritance. While Isaac was, and as a free, legitimate child of God, I receive all of the inheritance that he has promised to us in the New Testament. In order to live under the new covenant, it says I need to get rid of the old. Now this is not a nice Canadian church cultural idea that we get rid of Hagar, we send her away. But remember, this is an illustration, it's an allegory, a ministered idea. The idea is get rid of anything in your life that smacks of idolatry. Any human effort to placate or please God. Any, anything you try to do to earn his favor, get rid of it. Anything to help him out in fulfilling his promises. I think we've all done this a time or two. We are all born disobedient and trying to redeem ourselves in our own way. We were just up camping at Cypress Hills with a lot of my family and my niece has a little girl, she's two and a half years old, her name is Gracie, and Gracie is a firecracker. And anytime you try to help Gracie do anything, she says, I do it. She grabs it and I do it. Now I hope all of you recognize the irony of a child named Grace saying, I will do it my way. <laughs> Fortunately, she has God-loving parents who I'm sure will teach her out of that, teach her to fit into her name a little bit better. When our daughter Amber was one year old, she loved to scoot around in a walker. Now, for those of you who are younger, walkers have been banned, okay? Um, this was pre-ban. So a walker is a little bag in a frame and it has wheels on the bottom and you plunk your kid in there and they can kind of push their legs and scoot around and she loved it. Um, like I said, it was pre-banned. They were banned because children would go down the stairs and cause serious damage. So we didn't have any open staircases. It was, it was good. And as soon as, Am as Amber could scoot around our living room, she discovered a big potted plant that I had there, and it was right at her level. 
She'd get in there with her fingers and dig around in the dirt and eat it. So I spent a few days teaching her, no, no, dirty, don't touch, cleaning her off, snacking her little fingers to teach her, don't touch, and pulling her away and finding something else. And a few days into this, I saw, I was just coming into the living room and I saw her scooting across the room towards that plant and I thought, I wonder if my teaching, my obedience teaching has worked. So I didn't really look at her, just kind of out the corner of my eye. And she parked herself by that plant and then she didn't do anything. She just sat there. I thought, oh, it's working. Ha ha, I'm a great mom. And I waited for a few more seconds, and she still didn't do anything. So I finally turned, and I looked at her face on. And as soon as she saw me looking at her, big grin on her face, her hand went in the pot. And I thought, you little sinner. We're all born disobedient and trying to redeem ourselves, and we carry that into our relationship with Jesus. That is the core of what these false teachers were peddling. Sure, believe in Jesus, but then obey the law and you'll earn your salvation. And Paul says here, are you guys crazy? We're born disobedient, and therefore we cannot obey God's law. That's the old covenant. You've already tasted grace. You've tasted the freedom from sin and guilt that comes with Jesus under the new covenant. Why throw that away? Why jump out of the nest looking for your identity and and fulfillment someplace out in the world? Why turn away from freedom? Why turn towards slavery? Why turn away from God at the center to focus on a bunch of rules? You already have your identity. It's in Jesus Christ. It's all you need. And after that, you'll find ways to obey God. What's the difference? Now you have the Holy Spirit who will give you the ability to obey God. Freedom from sin and guilt. That is the past. Freedom to obey and honor God. That is the future. Now our conclusion comes in the last two verses here, verses 30 and 31. I'm going to read them again. But do what the scriptures say about that. Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. What is this inheritance thing? Well, first of all, it is not for the slave son somebody trying to reach God by their own human effort. If I am living under the law and a set of rules in order to try and please God, I am not allowing Christ to be formed in me. Sometimes it feels easier to just obey a set of rules rather than exercising my Holy Spirit listening skills, but that's a twist. It's not easier. Don't try to hang on to both your old, familiar, enslaved habits, following the rules, and your freedom in Christ. We must choose one or the other. We cannot have both. Right now in this room, every single one of us is enslaved to gravity. If you can try and beat it, it's not going to work. If you go up in space, 
then you can float and you're no longer enslaved to gravity. But you can't do both at the same time. And that's what Paul is saying here. You cannot hang on to your old, my rules will get me to God, and also your freedom in Jesus Christ. So the inheritance is only for the free son. And I'm free. I'm free because I have accepted Jesus' payment for my sin. Obviously, this inheritance includes heaven, but it also includes the abundant life now. And sometimes we forget this part, especially when things get tough or don't work out the way that we think that they should. This inheritance means I am not obligated to obey the rules in order to earn a relationship with God. The inheritance means I'm not constantly condemned or condemning others who fall short of my standards. The inheritance means I'm acceptable. There are no performance issues with God. The inheritance means I have security. I am God's child, and he is in control, so I can have peace no matter what is going on around me. And the inheritance means freedom. Freedom from sin, but not just that. Freedom to, to become what God has planned all along for me to be. Freedom to become who I long to be in my heart. So like that little bird, who is your mother? Who is your spiritual mother? Don't, don't step out of the nest, that the new covenant nest, that secure identity in Jesus Christ alone, because it is the only way that we have freedom to become who God created us to be, the only way to have the inheritance. If God has mentioned through his word today some law, some rule that you think you have to obey so that he likes you more, that's an idol of, I can do it. I can do it my way. And that is actually separating you from him, not getting you closer to him. So don't wait. Don't hang on to it any longer. Get rid of it. Let's pray. I thank you so much, Lord, for your word. <clears throat> and I thank you for your Holy Spirit who applies your word to our hearts and minds. I'd ask that you would continue to work in us. Please point out to us any remnants of rebellion that we have been hanging on to, any of those I-can-do-it moments where we think we can help you out by doing it our way. Help us to look to the things or turn to the things that you have set up for us for our good and to walk in that identity and to our, find our fulfillment only in Jesus Christ and the plan you have on our lives. Turn our hearts completely to you and rid us of those remnants of sinfulness and disobedience that we carry around. Thank you because we have this inheritance that is so much bigger than, than anything we can possibly imagine. And it is something that you give us freely through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Amen. Thank you very much, Linda.
Um, we're going to sing one more song together, and um, if you need someone to pray with, you can come forward. There will be our prayer teams will be up here to pray with you if you need them.